Good evening, Harvest. Let me invite you to turn to Psalm 34 in your Bibles. You should be able to see the text on your screens, but as we go through the text, as we hear God's Word preached, I would encourage you to have your Bibles open to help you follow along. I'll be reading Psalm 34, and then I will read from 1 Samuel chapter 21 for the context and the occasion of the psalm. But let me begin with our text for tonight. Psalm 34. Of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. O oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And now for the occasion of the psalm, we have 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 through 15, and then uh, continuing into chapter 2, verse 1. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. When Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? 
Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it and went down there to him. Let us ask the Lord for his blessing over his word. Our Heavenly Father, you see us as we come to you thirsty and hungry and often ignorant of our thirst and our hunger. Make us aware of it so that we could taste and see that you are truly good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, in verse 12 of our text today, there's a question that is, in essence, rhetorical. It is, we could say, redundant. The, the psalmist, David, asks, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Who likes a good life? Who wants a good life? That's the essence of that question. And if we did a quick poll tonight here or anywhere in the area or, in fact, in the country or in the world with that question, we would get, get one and the same answer, that everyone wants good life. Now, if we asked what that good life looks like and what constitutes a good life, and we asked people here that question, now that's when we begin getting different answers. For some, it would mean good health. For others, it would mean a good career. For others, uh, yet it would be a perfect spouse, maybe a hobby. For kids here with us, maybe it is a toy or a set of toys, whatever it may be. A popular saying, I believe, reveals our typical carnal fleshly approach to what constitutes a good life and how we get it. The saying goes like this, if you can change your circumstances, change your attitude. And at the core of that saying are two things. It's either, well, if, if things are not going your way, then change yourself or do it yourself. So there's two things. We, we look for, for a good life. We look either outside of us or we look within us. We either look for, for what we sometimes call luck to come our way, or we look inside and look at our efforts, our strength, our ability to provide happiness, to provide um, goodness, to provide um, prosperity in our life. And yet, as we look at the text tonight and as we look at the psalm, it is answering that very question, what is a good life and how do we get it? And the answer it provides is neither of those two things. It neither looks outside nor inside of us, but provides us with something else. Something else that stands when the things outside of us, our circumstances, fail us. And when our own strength betrays us. And so, we are looking at our text today, and we are asking three simple questions that will uh, provide those three points for our sermon. What does a good life look like? What does it consist of, and how do we get it? What does it look like? 
What does it consist of, and how do we get it? Now, when we look at the text before us, we see that David is speaking as, quote-unquote, expert. He says in verse 11, he says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Well, I have the answer to that question. But David is not only speaking, he is not only saying that he has an answer. Where our psalm actually begins is with David demonstrating to us what a person who's living a good life looks like. We see three connected things there. Immediately as we begin reading our text, the first thing that stands out is this public, lavish, unashamed, unrestricted praise of God. David begins, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. So the first thing, the the very first thing, we see that a good life is a life marked by praise. By praise, which is essentially saying, look, God has been faithful to me personally, and He has been so faithful that I, wa- I, I want, I must share it with others. I must invite others to join me in my worship. David says, says something that on the surface does not make any sense. In verse 1, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. But when we think about it, what can we possibly offer the Creator of the universe, the Savior of His people, as creatures that would constitute a blessing, that would add to what God is and has in and of Himself? It is the God in the Bible who blesses not his people. But David is in such a state, David is is so overwhelmed with the goodness of the Lord that he's saying, I will bless God, I will worship God as though I would return to him, as though I could give something to him, as though I could add to the perfection of the Lord. A good life is marked by praise, but that praise now rises from something else, and that something else is that it is a life of favor. It is a life that's marked by praise, which has a reason, which has a cause, and that cause is the favor of the Lord. If you look, and I'm not going to go through all of it in the psalm, but if you look at the psalm, what becomes clear that there are those who have the favor of the Lord. And in this text, they're called the righteous. Or in other words, to say in light of the the topic of our sermon, the good life, these are the people who possess a good life. They are the righteous. And consistently throughout this psalm, we have this formula of if, then, if, then. As uh, we could could see this, David says in verse 4, for example, I sought the Lord and He answered me. So, I sought the Lord he answered me. There's, there's a relationship there. Those who look at Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. 
This poor man cried, verse 6, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. This motive is repeated throughout the psalm, that those who have God's favor have his ear and have him attentively listen to them and respond to them coming to their aid. In fact, when we look at verses 15 and 16, they give us a description of humanity as a whole. Look at those two verses with me. David says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. What is fascinating is he's telling us this. God looks at us in one of two ways. He either faces us as a fierce king, a general faces his enemy across the field, about to unleash the wrath of his armies to consume and destroy the enemy, or he looks at us the way a father looks at their children, eager, attentive to listen and to hear their cry. And the moment they're in need, the moment there's a challenge and, and, and there's a trouble, a father who comes to their aid. And it is clear from our text that David, the psalmist, puts himself within the former camp, the latter camp. I mean, he sees God as his father, and, and he finds God's favor in his life. A good life is marked by favor. It is a life that out of that favor then uh, flows the abundance of praise, but it is also a life that is peaceful. That, that um, favor leads to a lasting peace. David makes this statement, those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Those who look to God do not keep looking over their shoulder to face, to, to, in fear of shame, in fear of trouble. They live in unchanging, unwavering peace. And so here we have someone whose life manifests what it looks to have a good life, a life of public, abundant praise, a life of God's favor, and a life of peace. Now, we as human beings often judge by appearances, and by and large, that's not the, the, the faithful, the biblical way to do things. In this case, it is helpful for us to judge by appearances and to contrast this image of someone possessing good life, possessing uh, prosperity, to how we often look and how our lives often compare to this image. And so out of that comparison then comes a question, well, if this is how someone who has it, who's made it, look like, looks like, well, what, is, what does the life itself consist of? What makes a good life that manifests itself this way? And so this brings us to our second point, and that is what does this good life consist of? Again, I'd like to remind us that uh, our typical respond, response or approach to pursuing life, uh, prosperity and success, whatever we call it, the good life, depends 
either on outer forces on or on inner forces. It either depends, we look at it and we think how we do in life depends on something that's outside of us or something that's within us. How we face failure and challenge reveals this often. We, we've heard people say, you know, I did this, I treat my family this way because of what my parents did to me. This is someone who's blaming others for their misconduct, for their sin, for their failures. Or you'll find in yourself, when you fail, some of us look at it and say, well, I just need to, need to try harder next time. It's up to me. I didn't do enough. I didn't do well. I didn't go far enough, far and beyond, so that this would not happen and I would have what I wanted to have in the first place. Typical path to good life is either something done to me, put it simply, or something done by me. The, the psalmist, however, condones neither one nor the other, but gives an altogether different way and gives an altogether different picture of this good life. And we observe two things. This good life consists of two things, identity and fear, identity and fear. And essentially, they're two sides of the same coin. Now, again, this psalm is littered with profound, bold statements. In verse 2, David says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. To paraphrase it, this, David is saying, the glory of my soul is nothing else but the Lord. Now, I think this is a moment in the sermon where we can turn to the context within which David is saying this, because we might be tempted to read our carnal approach into this and say, well, sure, you're saying this when things are easier where you're out of trouble. You're saying this because you're king. You're saying this because doors are open to you. You're in a position where everyone would say the same thing. My soul makes boast in the Lord. Well, let's see how, how you fare when you go through trouble. And so we turn to the context and have David set to us the example, the illustration on what it, of what it means when our identity, our very soul, has its highest treasure in the Lord. Now, we read the passage from 1 Samuel 21, and we saw that though David essentially finds himself here in a cave, someone who just ran away from his enemy and saw God spare his life, Someone who was foolish enough to run from one of his enemies to another of his enemies and then had to pretend to be a madman just to get out of it. Yes, he is experiencing a level of relief, but so just we would not be tempted to conclude that David is having this, that this is a statement out of relief and that it's not the statement that David would make during the trial itself. 
we have another Psalm, Psalm 56. And there, we have the same situation, the same circumstance. The only difference is that David is writing during his captivity with the Philistines. He's in the midst of this trial, not having gone through it, but is actually going through it. And here's what he says in Psalm 56, verses 9 through 11. He says, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And here, this statement comes in the midst of the hardest of trials. And so here's a picture of someone who is not determined, whose life and the quality of whose life is not determined by their circumstances. But more than that, in David, we truly see someone who couldn't care less about what others think of them, who couldn't care less about their status and what that start, who couldn't care less whether they can use their status to further their agenda. And the reason we know this is the reason that, uh, that we have this psalm, and we have the heading, and we have the record in 1 Samuel 21. Because you see in the surrounding uh, kingdoms, in the surrounding nations at that time, what you would have if you went and looked at their documents, at, the, at their historical records, what you would have said about the king would be their successes. They would record the, the glory, the power, the wisdom, and the success of their king. What you would not see are the failures of those kings. And yet we have, a, have David. Here he's not yet, he's been um, anointed to be the king, but yet he has not yet sat, uh, sat in the throne to be the king of Israel. He's actually running away from King Saul. He's being persecuted. And he has later this recorded because what we have here is the state of every one of us before the Lord. And here is the king, a king who's not afraid for others, for his inferiors, to read the following account. Had he pretended to be a madman, that out of his foolishness he got himself in trouble, that he had spittle dripped down his beard. Now, is that the image that you as a king would want? To have your inferiors of you, if you cared about what others think, if you cared about your status, about your uh, class? The only thing that David cares about is what God thinks of him. He trusts not in himself, but in the Lord. And so here is someone whose identity is not tied to the external circumstances, nor to the inward potential, but to the Lord. However, this identity question goes uh, hand in hand with the topic, the, the idea of fear. Right in the middle of the psalm, verse 9, 
David calls us to fear the Lord. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. And then, although anticipating the question, he explains what that fear looks like. He says in verses 13 and 14, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, on the surface, this sounds like the following. You want a good life? Do good. Be good. Accrue a record of good works, and you will have a good life. What is actually being said here, rather, is a call to consistency. A call to consistency. To fear the Lord, in essence, means to live in accordance with your identity. For us, as Christians, it essentially means that if we claim to be Christians, we live like Christians. This is not saying that we need to live a certain way to be saved. This is rather telling us that our experience of the favor and goodness and love of God for us in Christ is tightly connected to how we live. Not the reality of it, but experience of it. And we know ourselves, don't we, that a lot of our misery comes from the inconsistency between who we claim to be and how we live. Some of us are called to be shepherds of our children, and yet we see happiness in their achievements. We turn them into our trophies and drive them to madness just to satisfy our own idolatry, to build our status. We, all of us are called to pursue peace, and yet so often we find satisfaction in quarreling and fighting. We are called, some of us, to love our spouses, to serve our spouses, and yet we use marriage to serve ourselves. We are called to steward resources God given to, uh, given to, God, to us by God, yet we seek fulfillment in things and in those very resources. We are called to make disciples out of nations, and yet we should use church for self-fulfillment. We are called to give our time and resources sacrificially, and often all we do is use them for self-advancement. You could keep that list going on, but these are several examples of the ways the disconnect between who we are and how we live happens. You know, there's a, a famous saying, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, then it just may be a duck. But when I think about how the outsiders, the world sees us, looks at us, and sees us, the image I get is a group of bears having a label that says duck, trying to quack and pretend to be a duck. There is a gap between who we are and how we live. And the question before us, the final question, 
is how do we bridge that gap? How do we get the good life that we see in this psalm? The temptation, of course, will be to either try harder or to give up, either to blame yourself or to put it on yourself or to put it and account it to what's happening outside of your control. But the answer is neither. How do we bridge the gap? Our third question, our third point, how do we get this good life? Now, the answer is fairly simple and yet not simplistic. It is a deep and lasting trust in God's faithfulness. When we look at David in this text, we see someone who is confident in God's unchanging favor. And yet this confidence comes on the heels of his deep foolishness. Why? How can David, and what gives David a reason to proclaim the faithfulness of the Lord when he himself failed? The reason is that David has tasted and seen that the Lord is good and is now inviting us to do the same. He has tasted and seen that the Lord is good and is inviting us to do the same. How do we do it? In our text, we have verses 19 and 20, and I believe that's the answer, or at least the beginning, the foundation of our answer. The text reads, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Before this text and after this text, when the psalmist speaks of the righteous, he speaks in plural, but here, whether by accident or intentionally, it changes to a singular righteous. And to, the, to David and to the immediate Hebrew audience, this was a pointer back. This was a pointer back to the one definitive act of God's redemption in the history of the nation of the Jews, and that was His deliverance of them out of their bondage in Egypt. In Exodus 12, verse 46, when, it is being, when Moses is giving uh, instructions on how to eat the Paschal dish, the Paschal meal that signified God's faithfulness to His people in, the, in, in His deliverance of them. Moses writes, It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. The bones remained intact. Here we have the bones, the promise that the, 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 the afflictions of the righteous are many. They are there. We are to expect, our expectations are set right. We are to expect afflictions in this life. But the Lord delivers him out of them all, and he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. So we see that theme here. We see that theme around the, uh, God's act of faithful salvation in the past, but this also is pointing us forward. And interestingly, these very words turn out to be a prophecy 
As one of the apostles, John, writes many centuries later, he writes, having just provided an account of Jesus' crucifixion and death, in John 19, verse 36, he writes, for these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Speaking of Christ, speaking of the Paschal Lamb, what is this obsession with preserved bones? The answer is that that is a symbol of God's faithfulness to the righteous one. The symbol of God's faithfulness to the righteous one. Here we have Christ in the darkest of moment of the darkest moments. We have Christ with sin, with, with God's wrath piled on Him for the sins of many. We have the greatest moment, humanly speaking, of despair, futility, hopelessness, darkness. And in that moment, the apostle is telling us that God is being faithful and that the righteousness of the righteous one will conquer and that this is the promise of resurrection. This testifies to God's faithfulness until the end. It is faithfulness to the righteous. It is a declaration that Christ is righteous. God in Christ is righteous. It is also a declaration that in Him we have been made righteous, declared righteous, and also that in Him and through Him He is going to be making us righteous until the end, until He perfects us. And so, brothers and sisters, do not take this as a light-hearted, off-handed suggestion. But when in life, and maybe for some of us, if not many of us today, it is that very moment when either our strength fails us or our circumstances betray us, and we have nothing, absolutely nothing else to turn to, and we're seeking the answer to the question, how can I bridge this gap, and how can I trust the Lord when He seems absent? How can I be, how can I find joy in this life? The answer is, the faithfulness of the Lord to the crucified Christ and in Him to us. How can I trust this God? He's shown us. He gave us the definite act of love. And through that act, He gives us security. And through that act, we can be called the faithful. That is one of the mysteries of this psalm that David calls those faithful who have no faithfulness on their own. And now we see where that faithfulness comes from. And so here is the security that we have in Christ. Here is the relationship with the triune God into which we are invited. And this is a call for us to rest in the faithfulness of God, in the security that we are given, not to rest only weekly, not to rest only daily, but to rest hourly and minute by minute, to find our absolute security and safety in the Lord. Out of that fellowship 
into which we are called securely then comes God's favor, comes that sense of lasting peace. Out of this overflows the praise that is public, that is unashamed. It is because of this reality right here that people around us will say, they look, they walk, they talk, and they live like followers of Christ. And so they are. May God grant us that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you call us to taste and see that you are good. And you've shown us your goodness in Jesus Christ. And so give us faith to believe and teach us through the work of your Spirit what it means to live with you, to live by you, to live through you. What it means to have fellowship with uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Lord, take us by the hand and walk us through this life in a manner that we could boldly say that for us to live minute by minute is Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.